0: So I can't help but laugh (laughs) if if you if you were not with us when our church began in Elkton the railroad tracks were just on the other side of this divider right here essentially and it sounded like the train was in the building Um, this is the first time we've ever heard it since we've been here but it would always come at the most opportune moments like this you know Um, so anyway very funny Um, good memories. Hey, in your worship guide, there was this other piece of paper that um, is titled Lamb's Foundations, Rooted in Faith, Hope, and Love. I hope that you'll uh, have that nearby because I'm going to ask you to uh, refer to it during the sermon this morning. So today, uh, this first Sunday of Epiphany, uh, we're beginning a new series, this series called Lamb's Foundations, Rooted in Faith, Hope, and Love. This is going to become the way that newcomers to Lamb are introduced to who we are. It can be the way that non-Christians, curious seekers can be introduced to the faith, uh, the way that a person can move into baptism or a family can move into baptism at Lamb, uh, and it's, it's the starting point for people to join our, our body here. Now, In the future, we're going to do this in smaller groups, but for this first time, we're doing it all together as a way to get everyone on the same page at the same time. Now, if, if you've been here a while, you might ask we're, why we're doing a new series like this since we we had an old one called essentials this was the way that people joined lamb uh, if you've done essentials you're going to notice some, some familiarity to what we're doing in this series but the, the point of this is to very much bolster our discipleship in our mission as a church so part of the way we're doing this is we're introducing some new elements like a teaching on the lord's prayer Uh, this will be part of this series, a a teaching on living a life of obedience, which will cover the Ten Commandments and the great commandment that we had earlier in our liturgy, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And the reason for including these, adding these in to what we already have, is because they've almost always been a part of core Christian teaching, regardless of the denomination that you're a part of. um, These are part of the essentials, the foundations of the Christian faith. So what we're trying to do in this is simply bolster what we're already doing. Now, why are we using faith, hope, and love as the things we're to be rooted in? Well, I want to spend a few minutes explaining this one, and this is where you're going to need the insert that was in your worship guide. Now, we know, if you've been to a wedding recently, that these are found in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. But these are actually found together in several other places in the New Testament too. And I've put a few of these scriptures in that document in your worship guide so you can track along. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10 verses 22 through 25 or or follow along in that insert. Here the, the writer of Hebrews is encouraging a pretty battered church. The church that's receiving this letter of Hebrews is full of people who are discouraged. And some of them, the writer knows, they're considering leaving the church altogether. So he tells them this. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and that is Jesus Christ, let us draw near with a sincere heart in the assurance that faith brings. There's faith. Because we have had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Now we're going to be talking in the sermon more about baptism. You need to catch this. He's talking here about how they have all been baptized into Christ. Washed in pure water. And then he goes on. Let us hold unwaveringly to the hope that we confess. For the one who made the promise is trustworthy. And let us take thought of how to spur one another on to love and good works. So even if you're not discouraged and battered, but especially if you are, the writer calls on us to draw near in faith, to hold unwaveringly to the hope we confess in Christ, and to consider how we can spur each other on to love and good works. So faith, hope, and love here make up the core components of a rooted Christian life. Now, 1 Thessalonians is another place that we hear this language. The Apostle Paul tells the church, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to mention just one more of these occurrences of faith, hope, and love. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And I want you to notice how in this passage, this triad of faith, hope, and love is paralleled, mirrored by the mention of each of the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of God's glory. Not only this, but we also rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, when you put these passages together, here's how faith, hope, and love are used in the Bible. They make up what I'm going to call, has been called, a virtue triad that is rooted in the relationship to the triune God. So, virtues are the kinds of things that humans do when we're at our best. We're believing people, we're hopeful people, and we're loving people even in the midst of dark trials. Vices are the exact opposite. Vices are the things that we do when we're at our worst. We lack faith. Instead, we're despairing. We lack hope. And we're unloving, unkind, perhaps even hateful. Faith, hope, and love are core virtues of the Christian life, but they are only, and they're only developed through relationship with the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, in relationship with the Trinity, we have faith, faith in God's promises to us, faith in God's promises to redeem the world through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have hope in God and in the coming of his kingdom in spite of a sometimes hellish darkness that surrounds us and the world. And we have love that is poured into our lives through the spirit that can even overflow from us toward each other into our work and our service in the world. But becoming people of faith, hope, and love, this takes the ongoing work of God's Spirit in our lives. Without the help of God, we, our natural nature, our nature, is, it pulls us toward vices, not virtues. Forms of unbelief, despair, and unkindness. So we constantly have to go back to God to live in connection with the Trinity, asking for help, So, that faith, hope, and love become more natural to us. So, throughout the season of Epiphany, we're going to explore faith, hope, and love. What are we to have faith in? What are we to believe? What are we to love? And how are we to love? These are foundational questions for anyone's life, but especially for the life of a Christian. These are the kinds of questions we all need to be able to answer now i've put the breakdown for this series on the back of your insert Um, and with the few minutes that we have left this morning we're going to start with hope and under hope we're going to explore sacraments so today as i said is a sunday each year when we remember jesus's baptism and still in remembering christ's baptism we are also to reflect on our own baptisms if we've been baptized. Now, here's the reason we're talking about baptism and Eucharist as a means of hope. So, what are God's people to hope for? What, what, what are we to hope for? What is it that Christians hope in? Above all things... We put our hope in God. So this is what the psalmist says in Psalm 39. Now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Psalm 62. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress I shall not be shaken. There are lots of things that humans desire in life. Very naturally. To be surrounded by loving people to have satisfying work that we can do in the world to have some material comforts all these are good things but what should we actually put hope in we hope in god in the richness and comfort of relationship to him in the promise of his mercy and his salvation his judgment on evil and his final redemption of the world now There are lots of places that God meets his people personally, that he meets us to assure us of our hope in him. Uh, We can be in nature and we can be comforted by God's glory, his power. Um, There might be something that we're praying for, some material provision that we need God to come through for us, and he does, and we experience his love and we experience hope in that. In friendships and in family members if you're married in a marriage relationship but there are two specific places within the life of the church that god has promised to meet us and these are baptism and the eucharist baptism and eucharist are two symbols that christ gave the church to enact and participate in god's kingdom in the present in the Lord's prayer, we hear, uh, we pray, "Let Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven." And what we do in baptism and Eucharist is is a thin place where God's kingdom, His heavenly kingdom, overlaps with heaven and earth, with with earth, and it breaks in with baptism. Christ told his disciples, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. This is something Christ gave the church and commanded us to do. And with the meal of Eucharist, Christ told his disciples, do this as often as you remember me, and as you read through the New Testament, what do you find? But that churches are doing this essentially every time they meet to worship him. Now most churches call baptism and Eucharist sacraments what do we mean by this here's what we mean that in these moments god is present and he's doing three things he's giving us his grace he's communicating his love and he is warning us against sin he's giving us his grace he's communicating his love And he is warning us against sin. So let let me first show you quickly how God gives us his grace and communicates his love in these symbols. So one of the most important passages on baptism is Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And it starts in verse 3. It asks us a question. Listen to this question. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, this passage asks us a question. Let's ask this passage a question. What is baptism about? What is baptism about? It's about those who are baptized being joined to Christ buried with him in his death for sin and raised to a new kind of life so baptism in this passage what we're seeing is that it is an act of grace in which we receive gifts from God through a relationship to Christ a new relationship we receive freedom from our sins and a new capacity to live aright as a human being as God intended us to live so Baptism is not primarily about a person making a testimony of God's work in their lives. As wonderful as that is, that puts too much onus on the person. Baptism is rooted in God's grace and in God's promises. In baptism, everything that belongs to Christ becomes ours. So one of the greatest things we receive in baptism... Is a new identity from our Father. Just as the Father communicated his love of Jesus at his baptism, this is what we have to learn to hear from God through our own baptisms. So at the baptism of Jesus, as we heard in Matthew chapter 3, the Father announced this to the world This is my beloved Son, with him I am well pleased. The Father makes this astounding announcement that we're hearing to this day. This is my beloved Son, and with Him I am well pleased. And what we have to learn to do as we're joined to Christ in our own baptisms is look back to our own baptisms and hear that God makes this same announcement about us. In your baptism, God says to you, you are my beloved And I'm well pleased with you. But notice that God is making this announcement uh, uh, to the world. So with Christ at his baptism, he says, this is my beloved son. And so in a sense, what's happening at your baptism is God is announcing to all of us, this is my beloved child. With them, I am well pleased. And our job as the body of Christ is to join with God in saying, yes, this is God's beloved child. And we have to learn to say this to each other. We have to learn as parents to say this to our children. Do you know what God says to you? You're his beloved child. And he's well pleased with you. This is the identity we receive from our father. This is the identity that all children are created to receive from their father. You're beloved. So in baptism, the father gives us his grace. He buries us with Christ in his death and he raises us in his resurrection and he communicates his love. This is my beloved. Now we can say the same thing about Eucharist. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 16, Paul asks a rhetorical question. The cup of blessing that we bless, is this not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ. Now this word, participation, it's a word that Christians use, Christians use a lot. It's the word for fellowship, koinonia. It's the word we use to describe time we spend together over meals and just sharing in friendship together. Now, here's what's important. Do you remember what Jesus said about friendship and the way that you show love in a Friendship. Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Eucharist is a place where we remember and participate with Christ in his ultimate act of love for us. His body broken, his blood shed for us. And Christ does something to us when we participate with him and with each other in this meal. E- Eucharist is never an individual meal. Know this. You come, yes, and you receive the body of Christ yourself, but you always do it in a line with other people. It's never a line where you're alone. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. When we participate in this meal, we fellowship with Christ, the one who laid down his life for us, and we fellowship with each other because he has made us one body in his death. We receive his grace that makes us a new kind of humanity rooted together in faith, hope, and love. So in baptism, we're buried together with Christ, and in Eucharist, we become one. With the body of Christ. So in baptism and Eucharist. God gives us his grace. And he communicates his love. Now we're almost done. But before we close. There's another side to the sacraments. There's always the danger of the sacraments being abused. Of them becoming dead empty rituals. Yes. That's a possibility. We can all imagine someone saying. We can even imagine ourselves saying. Eh. I don't really get much out of it. I was baptized, but I don't remember it. Or I take communion, but I don't feel any different. The danger is that the sacraments become treated like they're portrayed in the movie The Godfather. There's a child being baptized while a hit is being carried out outside the church. Now, it might not be as extreme in our lives. I hope not. But the very real possibility is that it becomes dead to us not because the ritual itself is dead but because our inner life is dead this is why it's important to remember that while god certainly gives us his grace in the sacraments while he certainly intends to communicate his love to us in the sacraments he also warns us in them against sin so baptism for instance it is a double-edged symbol okay agreements in the bible always have this double edge to them so do you remember circumcision from the old testament in it god is saying you are going to be reserved for me this is a sign of you being reserved for me but there's this double edge to it see in circumcision there's a part of the body that is cut off meaning the people are being set aside for god but here's the other side of it if you rebel against god you will be cut off from his people meaning the circumcision meant nothing. So in baptism, we're baptized into death so that we can receive God's new life. But remember the story of Noah and the ark? That is said to be a picture of baptism. But do you remember there were lots of people who died in those baptismal waters? Because they rebelled against God. If we ourselves continue in a life of stubbornness and sin after our baptism, could it be that we never repented and fully turned our lives over to God? And the answer in that case, the, the way to solve that predicament, wouldn't be that we need to be rebaptized as if the baptism didn't take. This is where we have to clarify that the sacraments are never magic tricks, they're not. God calls for us to live more and more into our baptisms, to repent of our sins in an ongoing way, dying to them over and over and seeking to live the new life he offers. And when we don't do that, we find ourselves lost adrift in the world, living under a self-created judgment. Now, the Eucharist, too, is double-edged. So Paul warns the church in Corinth, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And he goes on, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, Paul says, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now please hear me here. The point of this kind of discipline from God, the point of this kind of threat, this warning, is not that we would become paralyzed by introspection. Oh I can never go to the table because I'm never good enough. That's not the point. The point is that we would not live stubborn lives of unrepentance. There wouldn't be places where we're always holding out on God, unwilling to do the hard work of giving our sin over to God and asking each other for help. That's the point. So let me ask you before we close. Is there anywhere where you are holding out on God? Refusing to deal with your sin and live into the baptismal promises that you have made? That in having been buried with Christ in baptism, you will allow God to lead you on into a new kind of life. So the sacraments, they are meant to be places of hope. Places where God gives us his grace and communicates to us his unfailing love. But when they're abused, they become dangerous places of judgment. And again, this is not a threat meant to paralyze you. But it's to lead you again and again to repentance. Back to the loving arms of your Father, who says to you, you're my beloved. And with you, I am well pleased once you turn to me, and I'll show you my love. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.